Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing, brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm your host, David Thornton. There are a select few stocks on the ASX that boast true market darling status. Where other stocks sell off at the hint of bad news, market darlings seem to emit an aura effect on markets that itself attracts investment. Biotech company CSL is arguably preeminent market darling having returned 5,741% since inception. For a while, it seemed like CSL could do no wrong, but even royalty can be dethroned. Today's guest is Ray David, Portfolio Manager and Partner at Blackwaddle Investment Partners. Alongside Joseph Coe, Ray runs Blackwaddle's brand new Longshore Quality Fund. Ray has a red flag system for identifying his short and underweight positions. He put CSL through the ringer and, as you'll learn, it spat out a sea of red flags. He also discusses the Ponzi scheme that sparked his interest in investment finance, why he's bullish BHP irrespective of the commodity cycle, and the media company with the best suite of assets on the ASX. A quick note to our loyal listeners, this is the first episode in our long-standing series that has been supported by a trusted partner of Livewire, Bell Direct. Research shows that experienced investors are looking for an edge. As the first ever sponsor of Livewire's Rules of Investing podcast, Bell Direct is offering exclusive access to three current Bell Potter stock reports every week for a limited time. To claim, hit up belldirect.com.au and look for the Livewire logo. Hey Ray, thanks for joining us on the Rules of Investing. Great to be here. Let's start with the origin story. Yours isn't the eastern suburbs right of passage into funds management, um, quite the opposite. What catalyzed your interest in investment management? Uh, that's right, David. It's quite a story. So I grew up in Western Sydney in a postcode that most fund managers wouldn't step foot in with a public school education. And so um, my first real exposure to invest investing was actually witnessing the, the rise and fall of a pretty decent sized Ponzi scheme in Western Sydney. It, it amounted to about $80 million of customer funds. It was run by a fraudster by the name of Carl Solomon, who was posing as a tech entrepreneur and was promising investors 10 times their money in three years. And he was quite successful in raising money. And so I watched as a lot of families lost their money and it inspired me to go out and get an education on learning how to invest. And so I started subscribing to a newsletter back then. Uh, it's called Huntley's Your Money Weekly, and it physically would deliver you the stock report each week. And that was my first uh, exposure or learning experience in, in, in stock analysis. And perversely, uh, that, that was also my first job in the industry. I, I applied for a job, and after getting a degree in university, um, I was one of the sort of graduate analyst intakes. Was it what you expected it would be? Uh, no, it wasn't actually. It was, um, it, was, it was difficult because I had no experience uh, and I was learning from very experienced people, but they were really good on training. And so it was actually a really good training ground for um, anyone that wants to become an analyst of the market because a lot of the learning you do is just from listening from their stories on the mistakes they made, the successes, um, how they constructed the portfolio, and also they just taught you to be really conservative around, um, I guess, your stock recommendations. So $80 million um, pyramid scheme, 10x 
promised over what was it three years? Yes. Sounds too good to be true. It probably is. What specifically did you learn from it? So I learned about the madness of crowds because you know you'd hear that such and such has invested in the scheme and they've got this much returns, uh, and so you really you really learn about hurting behavior and you know the fear of missing out. It's such a powerful powerful human emotion that can propel you to do things which you look you look back and you, know, you shouldn't have done. Um, the biggest thing I also learned was actually understanding the incentives that anyone has or the role that an incentive has for a particular agent. So, for example, the sales force employed by the scheme, they were, be, they were getting paid 20% commission. So if someone put in $100,000, they'd get $20,000. And so that incentivized boiler room type tactics and real pressure selling. Um, and Charlie Munger says it. He says, look, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. And that applied particularly to that case. Um, and so when you see families and friends that go through those losses, you know, you, you also changes your, your mindset. There are lessons that you take for life. And the biggest lesson there is obviously, you know, before you think about the return, think about the risk. And so often in our industry today, uh, in portfolio construction today, we spend a lot of time on just optimising uh, portfolio for lower risk and higher return. We're trying to solve for those two variables. And in that case, it was all risk and no return. Ray, you've worked on both the buy and sell sides of the industry. What were those experiences and how did they shape your approach to investing? Yeah, my time at UBS actually started just before the GFC. So <laughs> as I say, out of the frying pan <laughs> and into the fire. Um, it was a really good experience and I was very fortunate to work with the best analysts in the market. The business was headed by um, a guy called David Wilson who basically made it his business just to hire top three analysts. And so I got to work with really good analysts. Um, I quickly learnt the importance of strong balance sheets and owning quality companies. And often I talk about anti-fragile companies and fragile. So anti-fragile are businesses that are almost bulletproof and the fragile are the ones that won't survive a downturn. So within 18 months of me starting at UBS in the emerging companies team, I was covering IT services companies and smaller company retail companies. And I think they lost about 40 to 60% of their value in that time. And I, I recall talking to the company management teams and listening to the uncertainty in their voice and the real fear because no one knew how it was going to end. And, um, there was one particular conference call. It was with a company called MFS. Uh, you, you have to go back, you know, 10 years to look at this company. And it was a very fragile company. It was basically trying to become a mini Macquarie bank. And the CEO uh, was an investor call, a guy by the name of Mike King. He was in Trading Holt and he just was telling investors, he's, look, we can't get debt funding, markets are shut. The stock opened up, it was down 70%. And so it really highlighted to me is fragile companies in tough times just, you know, you, you never want to own them. You never want to own fragile companies in general. Um, so that was the first lesson from um, sell side. Uh, and then my, my time at the buy side, so 10 years at Schroeder's, really learned the importance around being disciplined about valuation and buying those anti-fragile companies when the market is throwing them out. And so as an example, in 2015, uh, the fund... Uh, the Australian share fund went significantly overweight BHP. Uh, BHP was trading around $16 a share, trading below book value, and the market couldn't see an end to the iron ore glut. But we took the view that you buy something below book value, 
because if the returns aren't there, no one's going to incentivize new supply. And so we end up making quite a lot of money out of that particular trade. Uh, there's another other uh, other examples as well that I can go through. But yeah, buying good quality companies at the right price matters more than anything else. You know, at Blackwaddle running its long short fund, which actually launched just last week, um, what attracted you to the new shop and what's the value proposition for investors? Yeah, Blackwaddle is a new generation funds management business. Um, you know, what attracted me to Blackwaddle was, number one, is the people involved. Um, but really what we're going out to investors and we're saying is, you know, we are one of the most highly aligned funds management businesses uh, in Australia. And we align because, number one, there's no personal account trading. So we are contractually obliged to invest um, our money in the funds. And that's for all staff members. So marketing, distribution, the board, um, the portfolio managers, of course, and even operations. And so the total capital committed by the staff members is about $10 million. And so, you know, we, if we're asking investors to invest um, money in the funds, you know, we, we should be invested alongside them, and we are. So that was the first point. Um, the second point is... Uh, it's a boutique business, so we're running this with a really low cost structure. Uh, we're really well capitalised, but because it's our money in the business, you know, we're, we're buying second-hand furniture, for example. You know, we're really careful how we spend our dollars, and so this low cost structure means that we can offer strategies with significantly constrained capacity. So we can run funds that are smaller in size, which then helps us perform and be nimble than the competition or sort of international large funds management groups which have large cost bases they need to support bigger funds for revenue to support their cost base so we're prioritizing performance and we do that by being low cost let's move on to markets for the past year roughly central banks and risk assets have been in a a sparring match of sorts have risk assets won they certainly have to year to date so the nasdaq is up 40 percent uh asx up Four, certainly not an outcome I would have picked, particularly coming into this cycle with the most aggressive monetary policy tightening cycle since 1984. But um, if you look back, you know, central banks clearly got burned by getting inflation wrong. And I think the whole market got inflation wrong. But the main thing is now is that you know, central banks aren't the market's friend. So you know, they used to be called the central bank put option. So anytime markets fell, they got concerned, they started to ease monetary policy. They can't do that in today's environment. And so that's quite the regime change. And it's actually a really good environment for long short investing. So if you think about a zero rate interest rate environment, as a short seller, it was very difficult. Go back to COVID, you had the meme stock trading saga with people buying bombed out companies, just ramping them up and just killing the shorts. And so in today's environment, when you've got a 4% long-term interest rate, you know, valuation starts to matter. And you're seeing that this reporting season where companies which either miss earnings are reacting pretty savagely because all of a sudden investors now have a real alternative. You know, before it used to be called Tina, there is no alternative. Today, if you don't want to take the risk of equities, you can put your money in the cash. And so for a long short investor, it's great because it's back to a stock pickers market where if you think a company's overvalued because valuation discipline really matters when interest rates are 4%, you know, you, you can be a better investor because you're focusing on valuation. So we've been in this rate hike cycle. So we've got to talk financials. What's your view on the banks? I've generally been concerned and worried about the banks because it just doesn't get any better for the banks. 
you know, your bad debts are at all-time lows. Um, your net interest margins are near peak. And uh, when you listen to the conference calls of the banks, you know, the number one priority is the customer and uh, their brand. And so, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty careful in terms of how they're managing uh, interest rates at the moment in terms of the competition review. But having said that, you know, they, the banks are performing far more better than what anyone expected. And they're, they're giving back capital to shareholders. So, yeah, at the moment, we think they're in a sweet spot. Uh, we underweight the banks just because we think conditions are going to get far more tough for them. But having said that, we're not expecting a GFC-style a GFC event where they need to raise capital. It's just that earnings growth is probably going to go backwards from here. There's still a very different view from the market of a bank like a CBA and a bank like a Suncorp, you know, which we have seen so far this earnings season. Yeah, so CBA is one of the most expensive banks in the world. It's 17 times earnings, close to sort of over two times book value. It's, it's, it's one of our biggest underweight positions, or we don't own much of it. Um, yet they always deliver the best returns to shareholders. They always perform the best. And so we can see why there's a bit of a halo effect. Do you see anything popping that aura of invincibility? I think bad debts. It's because CBA is one of the biggest mortgage providers in the country, and it's very difficult to avoid a tsunami when everyone's struggling. And the way interest rates have risen so quickly, and you see it in the western suburbs of Sydney, is people are starting to struggle. And so bad debts will come, and the question then becomes: is will they become manageable? And we think by that time, central banks will be cutting rates, and so. In that sort of environment, we'd expect banks to underperform. And then once the market can see sort of, I guess, the, the end of sort of bad debts, we think they'll outperform. And they're always late cycle. So if you go back at the recovery of COVID, they were the last ones to recover. So we, we think uh, it's, it's being on the way banks is, is the right call. Let's move on to your process. What does quality mean? Yeah, our traditional approach to quality is quite unorthodox. So it's, it's different from your normal quality manager where a quality manager wants high levels of recurring revenue, high margins, strong returns. We define quality as owning the best company in a given opportunity set. And if we didn't, you know, we'd own a portfolio of companies that replicate the NASDAQ. Uh, and so the best, the best way to describe it is give an example. Uh, so a company called Monodolphus, it's a mining service engineering construction company that most quality managers wouldn't go near because of the volatility in, in the earnings. Uh, we see Monodolphus as one of the best services provider in that sector. And I'll, I'll give you the reasons why. So when you benchmark Monodolphus to its peers, it's got a 15% return on assets through the cycle. It's got a management team that's promoted from within. So it's got a real culture around risk. And there's 21 years of track record where they haven't had any year of negative operating cash flow or any year of negative free cash flow and non-recurring items are completely absent. And if you compare that to, say, another construction business, um, it's not in mining, but like Lend-Lease. Lend-Lease are consistently every three to five years, they're, they're losing money on a project. Uh, or a company like Wally, you know, Wally's an engineering company, but about 20% of their EBIT is in sort of non-recurring items. And so the quality of the earnings for Come like Wally compared to Monodolphus is it's quite different. Um, we look at Monodolphus, it's got 14% of its market cap in cash. So one of the quality attributes about a contractor is having ungeared balance sheet. And when BHP and Rio or Liontown want to build a non-process infrastructure, guess who their first call is? 
Monodelphus. And so we'd say Monodelphus is the best operator. It's a quality operator in that space. And we can demonstrate that through their financial attributes as well as their track record. So when you're sitting at your desk, how does that quality mindset translate into the work? Yeah, step by step, it's um, quite mundane. So basically we're discussing valuations and we're trying to build a portfolio of companies that have the valuation upside or attractive valuations, but also have the quality attributes, which they talked about. So um, going back to the Monodolphus example, uh, so we look at Monodolphus and the market would say it's had five or six years of declining earnings, it's going nowhere. But when you look at it more deeper, they've basically flipped the business from mining construction to mainly annuity type services. So when BHP's plant goes down or a luminous plant goes down, Monodolphus is their call. And so their revenue and earnings base now is largely more stable. And um, the construction element of their business is quite depressed. And so on, on today's earnings, you're paying about 15 times EBIT, so about 7% return. But if you look forward, you know, we see a big boom in mining construction. Like there'll be billions of dollars needed to be spent just to dig up all the metals we need for decarbonisation. So seven times more lithium, three times more copper. And who are people going to call? It's going to be Monodolphus. And so we can make a case for Monodolphus having an asymmetric earnings profile to the upside. Because at the moment, most of the business is in services, about 65% of revenues. And if that construction element comes through, uh, their earnings could go from 70 million to 150 million. If you go back to the last peak, they were making 200 million. And so when, when we're look, assessing these businesses, so we're looking at the quality, the duration, uh, we're looking at the track record, and then the analyst is presenting the valuation. And we're, the analyst is making a case for the upside versus the downside. And then we do that for all the stocks in our coverage. And then we pick the stocks which have the best attributes of earnings upside or valuation upside and a lower risk profile. So if you look back over the past decade, shorting hasn't been easy as central banks have pumped liquidity into markets and basically everything's gone up. Um, but we're now in a very different paradigm. Is it a shorter's market? Great question. And um, something we spent a lot of time on when we looked at developing the strategy, we wanted to know what was the opportunity set because – I guess the ad, ad age is, you know, markets always rise. So, you know, you never want to be short the market. And that, that's true to some extent. But we looked at 20 years of data across the ASX 200 and ASX 300 indices. And we found that on average, most years, the ASX 200 index will give you a positive return. But when we looked at the constituent returns, so the stocks within the index, we found that on average... 40% of stocks decline every year, even in a positive year. So if you look at the ASX constituent data in 2012 and 2013, the index went up by 20 and 23%, but 40% of the stocks in the index went down, or gave you a negative return. And that's because the way indices are constructed, you know, it's always the big cap stocks which are giving you the index return, and there's a cohort of mid to small cap companies which give you volatility, and index buying just comes in and buys those stocks no matter what. Whereas we can find those companies and short them, we can generate better returns in the index. So as an example, in 2021, when you look at the ASX 200 index, there's about 50 or $60 billion of market cap of loss-making companies. There was about 21 companies which had 
two to three billion dollar market caps were loss makers. So battery technology startups, buy now, pay later, biotechs, and they get in the index, and then there's all this buying that comes in. But eventually, you know, at some point they have to report a profit, and the ones that don't, they get kicked out of the index. So the index construction is actually gives us a lot of opportunity for shorting, particularly if you're focusing on that sort of mid to small cap space where you know, they're getting in the index, they're loss making, there's, there's big market value, but all that sort of just goes up in smoke once people realise that this business is a fad. So how do you find them? Is it just the inverse of your long process plus maybe a catalyst or is it a completely different process entirely? It is to some degree um, a similar process, but you're taking the, the polar opposite. So rather than looking for the anti-fragiles, you're looking for the fragile companies. Um, we have a red flag system that has about 30 different red flags, and it's, it's best demonstrated through an example. So a company we were short in the past was a company called uh, EML or eMerchants. It was a really hyped up company on social media. And uh, it was a payments company that basically started out in gift cards and expanded into sort of uh, salary sacrifice and issuing cards for gaming companies and, and neobanks. But there was a strong narrative around the company that this thing was a fintech disruptor. And so we looked at the historic earnings growth and deconstructed the business. And we found that a lot of the earnings growth was acquired. And so its cash flow was weak. Acquisition accounting was aggressive. Um, our flags were showing us there's a lot of insider selling. The chairman and CEO were selling about $15 million of stock at the time and they had just made quite a large acquisition. So when we did the work, because the flags were throwing up, we also found there was notes in the auditor statements around concerns around some of their accounting policies. Uh, so we, we felt that the company was a low quality as as per the accounts were telling us, and the valuation was not supportive. And the market's thesis was around this narrative around fintech disruption. Uh, they, these guys were going to disrupt all the, the global banks, and this company made 20 mil of free cash against a, a reported sort of EBIT of 50 or 60, and he got CBA spending $700 million in c- cybersecurity, and so we couldn't see the case for it. Um, we were short the stock, and then you know, things just went from bad to worse. It got hit with... AML regulatory risk, uh, its acquisition didn't deliver. You know, the CEO basically left the company after it sold quite a bit of stock. And so that's the type of company we look to short. You know, the fragile companies where they're, they're hyped up on market valuations and you know, the earnings just don't ever materialise. Now, market darling CSL, you're not short the company, uh, but you are underweight the company. What red flags are you seeing there? Yeah, so this is one that surprised us. So when we look at our red flag system, it's generally the lower quality mid to small cap companies. Uh, but, you know, CSL is in the top quartile of red flags based on the system. And so that surprised me because I've, I've been covering this company for over a decade. It's a really high quality franchise, particularly the immunoglobulin fractionation business. And so, you know, it, these flags we tend to not want to ignore. We've, we've back tested them and they've been pretty good indicators of poor performance and so just to go through some of the flags is is number one is acquisition accounting so that's not a surprise they've just made probably the biggest acquisition in corporate Australia history so 12 billion dollars for the acquisition of v4 it's a bit of a step out for them you know v4 is a different business to the fractionation business and and step out acquisitions as jim collin writes in his books you know good to great 
generally not a positive thing. Um, and so there's that. There's a bit of acquisition accounting. Uh, the other flag, and this is my real pet hate flag, uh, because we've seen it happen a number of times, is segment restatement. So when companies restate segments, generally either there's a pivot in strategy or there's just too many acquisitions. They're just trying to change the way they run the business. Uh, it just makes it harder for analysts to really um, isolate the particular earnings coming from an acquisition or parts of the business. And so we don't like segment restatements. It just, it just um, makes things more opaque. And then um, the other flags that we pick up, uh, you know, management turnover. Um, you know, you've had a bit of management change just after Consumane, the biggest acquisition in the company's history. And there's, it's, it's coming up as a top 10 sort of insider selling by values. And so if you look at sort of total share sold, over the last couple of years, it's about eighty or ninety million dollars, and so, you know, we don't want to ignore these, particularly given the acquisition and a bit of a pivot in strategy. And then, you know, we do the work on it. There's also some, I guess, clouds overhanging around there. I guess a competitor that's come in for the first time in ten years. They may have some competition around their IG franchise, and Argenix is, is a biotech. It's developed. Um, it's reported very strong trial results for CIDP, which is about 30% of the IG revenues. And so at 27 times earnings, you know, we, we're sort of on the sidelines. We're wanting to see some of these concerns be addressed and abated. Um, as we said, the, these, these acquisi- companies that make acquisitions tend to be a pretty good hunting ground for us when we're looking at sort of a, sh- a short thesis. To what extent does that market darling status that CSL has compensate for these red flags from the market's point of view? In other words, how long does it take the market to cotton on that things might not be as good as they seem? Um, we've generally found these flags are a good predictor of either weakening earnings trends. And so often when the company reports earnings or provides an outlook statement, that's when either the flags will be vindicated or the flags will disappear. And so that's your event to catalyse you know, whether they can sort of, um, I guess, beat the flag system. Um, you know, the, the, I guess one of the concerns we have around acquisitions is generally when you're doing a step out to new business. And uh, V4 does have quite an exposure to patent expiries as well. And so, you know, if you look at CSL's management track record, generally it's been pretty positive. And so if, if they can get around these patent cliffs, we'd, we expect, you know, the flags to to sort of decline over time. But until until that's the case, we're, we're on the sidelines, as I sort of said. What are some of the high conviction positions the fund is overweight in as it bolts out of the gate? Yeah, we as we sort of look in the market, where we're seeing really good valuation opportunities is the chemical sector. And um, the two names there are Orica and IPL. Uh, in short, Orica and IPL are explosive manufacturers. So they take gas and ammonia and convert it into explosives. But it's a very, very capital-intensive industry and it's been in oversupply for the broader part of eight years. And so when you look at capital cycles, they can be very long. And so it takes years to work through oversupply and the, it can flip in terms of uh, the capital cycle maybe or the, the industry may be short capacity and leads to a price spike. And you're seeing that in airlines and, and mining. And so we think the industry will flip from oversupply uh, to undersupply, which can allow them to charge for higher rates. But also, if you look at the amount of inflation in 
uh, constructing an ammonia plant today, it's gone through the roof. So the last time a plant was constructed in Australia was uh, Orica constructed the Barrett plant at around uh, $1.1 billion, and that's what put the industry in over capacity. Today there's so much pressure on on ESG that you know, these very carbon-intensive uh, manufacturing processes, it's very difficult to see supply being added. And so even if, even if you applied that 2016 bill cost to the network today, you know, you're not paying much above replacement costs. Now, when BHP and Rio need explosives, they, they want the security of supply. And so they're willing to pay the high dollars if they're short capacity. Because if you can't mine, you can't sell the iron ore. And so we see the industry as being uh, tight over the next decade. And the big catalyst for change is actually a change of management teams across both businesses. So the prior management at Orica were very volume-driven. The current management team are focusing on lifting returns. Uh, so we think duopoly into structure, toll or infrastructure-type assets that will have, um, I guess, a, a, a correlation with, with growing mining volumes, particularly given the, the demand for lithium and copper, and stocks which look attractive on valuation. And you're also overweight in News Corp. What's the thinking there? Yeah, New, News Corp has been a long-held position for us. Uh, I was updating the valuation this morning just after their result, and it still looks very attractive you know, 20 to 30% upside. Um, if you look at News Corp, I think it's got the best quality assets on the ASX. So you've got the 61% holding realestate.com.au, which puts up its prices by 13% every year. Um, you've got the Dow Jones or Wall Street Journal. It's grown its EBIT from about $100 million in 2018 to about $380 million today. It's um Nearest competitor or comparable is New York Times, trades on a multiple 26 times EBIT. So if you apply the same multiple to uh, News Corp's Dow Jones business, you basically get today's market cap plus its REA stake. And so uh, you're getting Foxtel for free, you're getting HarperCollins, which is one of the biggest book publishers in the world for free, you're getting uh, you know, the, the traditional masters for free as well. And those other businesses generate about $400 million of EBIT. And so if you put that on multiple 10 times, you can get a market cap around sort of $30 billion, which is quite a bit of upside from where it is today. I like it. Okay, we're in the middle of reporting season. There's a lot of volatility. Have you made any changes to the portfolio in light of that? Okay, one of, one of the companies we've started now adding to the portfolio during reporting season is, is ResMed. Um, ResMed's it's a high-quality company that's always been expensive for us, but... Just after its last quarterly, the stock's down by about 20%. So the delivered 15% top-line growth, but there was some margin pressure, and so it missed analyst expectations. Um, if you look at what ResMed does, it's the category killer for sleep apnea. Uh, they sell a device, and then they sell two to three masks per year to that consumer at 70% margins. And so it's grown its earnings from about $300 million to over a billion dollars in EBIT. So that's very strong growth. Um, you know, the market is quite concerned about a competitor re-entering the market, which is Philips. Uh, our channel checks suggest actually Philips isn't that aggressive and isn't ready to enter the market. They've actually put in 10% price rises. So we think the quarter that just passed, you know, it was a reflection of increased freight costs, which will, which will basically um, pass through in the coming quarters. Um, you know, it's going back to my example when I talked about my lessons at Schroeder's is, you know, you want to buy the companies that the anti-fragiles is when they're thrown out. This is another example where, you know, this this is as good to great companies that Jim Collins talks about. 
uh, the, the management have pivoted pretty aggressively into digital and they're winning on digital and differentiation. And the runway for growth is quite material. So the prevalence of sleep apnea is about 900 million patients around the world and there's about 16 million people on CPAP devices. So there's a long runway for CPAP treatment and some of the trends there are obesity. What are you short going into the season? I know you can't speak to specific names and you're not alone there, but can you speak to sectors you might be short? Yeah, one would think where chock-a-block falls short discretionary retailers and office trusts, um, just given the pressures that they face. Uh, The market has actually priced a lot of that in where even when we start to put in really low earnings for companies like JB Hi-Fi, for example, you know, it's trading on a very mid-single-digit PE. So we, we can't make the case for short-selling. A lot of fundies I speak to are actually bullish. Um, just consumer discretionary yeah. in general for that very reason. Look, consumer is holding up really well. And um, you know, we expect it will get more difficult as time progresses because of fixed-rate mortgage cliff uh, and the margins will come under pressure from inflation. But today, you know, the, the share prices are implying a lot of that negativity. Uh, and so we, 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 our short book is actually quite diversified. It's a good mix of industrials, materials, there's even some healthcare. But if I talk to the characteristics of um, a couple of the industrials we are short, uh, so two industrial companies we are short is um, they're coming into this reporting season quite highly indebted. They've made some pretty big acquisitions over the last couple of years and they've overpaid for these acquisitions because they paid a high multiple assuming interest rates would stay low, which perversely is not, has not been the case. And these companies are capital intensive and they operate in quite competitive industries. And so one of them particularly is quite a, a price taker. Uh, and so they came this to us where the risk profile is more towards the downside. So the fragile companies with asymmetry to the downside and it's because of the industry structures that they, they operate in. And so in this environment, uh, going back to my earlier experience talking about Mike King, you know, MFS, when conditions get tough, you want to own tough businesses that are not indebted and these companies are the opposite of those characteristics. So um, we don't expect yeah, things to improve for these companies in the short run. If anything, the balance sheet looks under a lot of pressure. All right, let's finish up with our three favourite questions. They're a bit of a thought experiment. Question one, what's one thing investors are getting wrong about markets today? I mean, it'd be quite easy to say tech valuations in Australia are just incredibly wrong. Like, why second ProMedicus is on PEs of 110? You know, but I think I'd sound like a broken record. If I think a little bit differently, I think decarbonisation is a multi-decade um, trend. You know, I think it's going to be as big as the Industrial Revolution, even as big as the, you know, Boom, uh, the bloom of the blooming of the internet, where you saw companies like car sales just report, you know, fifteen years of compound growth. And so, when you look at the amount of minerals needed, the amount of capital that's required to decarbonize the world, number one, it's going to be inflationary. Number two is there'll be some winners out of that. And so, the winners, in our view, are companies such as Oracle and IPL with the explosive side, ALQ, which does a lot of testing for exploration. Uh, or anyone that's providing capital like Seven Group. And so these are portfolio companies which we think should be able to grow above the market over the next decade because they're the picks and shovels of um, decarbonisation. And so the market is very focused on what the lithium price is going to do. We're looking at it, okay, 
who are going to be the winners of this next decade and it could be I said three or four decades so I think it's if you go back to the experience of car sales and REA they were the winners of the last 20 years we think anyone linked to decarbonisation is the next winner of the 20 years yeah decarb's a f- funny one enormous interest uh, from institutional investors but I can tell you just anecdotally, retail investors on our platform are very sceptical of decarbonisation. And, you know, they say retail money chases institutional money. Um, but this scepticism we're seeing on our website is strong to say the least. Do you see retail investors moving past that? So I think with um, retail investors, and you see this on Facebook ASX chat pages, is they tend to go for these penny stocks, you know, the next lithium, Australia's next lithium stock or the next battery technology startup stock. And, you know, most of the times you lose money because, you know, these companies are coming to the market to raise capital to have a go at something. I think if you if you pick um, an existing provider that's already profitable, for example, IGO is one of the lowest cost lithium providers, I mean, lithium miners in the world, um, you'll see that the benefit of decarbonisation in cash earnings. And when you start to see cash on cash earnings come back to the shareholders, those investors may be convinced. So I think that's probably maybe where you might see scepticism because a bit like buy now, pay later. You know, it was the biggest thing since sliced bread two years ago. And uh, if Afterpay hadn't been taken over, I suspect the valuation of the company would be a lot lower today where it is. Question two, could you share a story of a big win or a big loss you've had in your career? Uh, What happened and what did you learn from it? I think the most exciting win for me would be um, was putting a buy on Domino's when I was at UBS. So at the time, Domino's was, believe it or not, an undiscovered stock. It had a market cap of about $400 million. And so um, I initiated coverage. I was trying to beef up the quality in my coverage after going through those you know, IT services blow-ups and small cap retail blow-ups. And I remember visiting Andrew Rennie, who was then the CEO of France um, in Versailles on my honeymoon. So I, I took a detour and had to pay for that quite dearly with my wife afterwards. But um, <laughs> I'd never forget that meeting. Um, and I remember him saying to me, "Is it was actually a bit of a Jeff Bezos moment. He said to me, all Domino's want to do is sell and manufacture pizzas for the lowest cost possible. So if we can manufacture and sell a pizza three or four dollars that's the cost we sell to the consumer for six or seven we get to feed them for dinner three pizzas for you know eighteen dollars the consumer wins our franchisees win because they get the volume and the franchisees get a 20 percent return on capital and that incentivizes more investment more franchises more volume and the dominoes the the parent wins because they get a six percent clip on the sales and so when he explained it to me about how the whole ecosystem of supply chain works, that was kind of the aha moment. It's like, okay, these guys are off, these guys are the lowest cost producer of pizzas. Like BHP of iron ore, Domino's of pizza. They can do it for a lot lower than anyone else. The consumer wins. And so they'll get more volume. And so that model basically expanded globally and today it's been a success story. So that was probably for me um, and one of the biggest lessons is backing good businesses, good management, that makes sense for customers as well as shareholders. They've really worked out the franchise model, haven't they? Which is somewhat rare. 
Yeah, because at the time I was covering another company called Retail Food Group. And so that one didn't go so well. And the difference was, was Domino's was always transparent on what like-for-like like sales were doing or same system sales. And so that's an underlying measure of the health of the network because a franchise's costs are always going up by 3%, 4% per year. So you need your sales to be growing ahead of that. As long as you can do that, and it's not through price but through volume, you know, the customer will always come back. And I think that's been the secret of their success. But the biggest secret, I think, is, is sticking to their needing. And so going back to some of those examples I talked about around short cases is when companies do step-out acquisitions, large acquisitions, segment restatements, you know, it's you know, Jim Collins writes about this, is that strategy pivots are never good for the long run. Final question. If markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own shares in one company, which company would that be and why? Look, with that, you'd probably say Domino's because you can't see pizza <laughs> being disrupted. Everyone wants a, a pizza on a Friday night. But um, no, one, one company which I think is misunderstood by the market is BHB. Uh, so if I buy that today, I get paid 10% and 10% on $100 of iron ore. Iron ore goes to $65, I get paid 5%. It's still better than the risk-free rate, but there's a chance that iron ore goes to $150 a tonne because you know, supply is pretty muted and the cost to bring it on is, is getting higher. And so then I make 15 to 20% earnings yield and it's got no debt. So going back to MFS, Westpac isn't going to ring up BHP and say we need our money back because they don't have any debt. And so when you say what company would you buy and hold it forever, it's you're saying what company is more durable and what's the, what's the attraction on valuation. And BHP ticks those boxes. And I think for BHP in particular is I saw what Ken McKenzie did at Amcor. Uh, he's got to be one of the best uh, A-grade management teams in the market. And if you listen to what he's saying, it's all about pivoting the portfolio. And going back to my earlier comments, if copper gets to $5, a pound, uh, BHP is going to be making 40% of its earnings from copper. And if we use our long run price of $75 for iron ore, iron ore, it doesn't, it, iron ore is no, no longer as significant. It's still a large part of the business, but the market will start to look at these things as the best copper players in the market. You've brought up BHP quite a lot through today's chat, and it sounds like it speaks to you know wanting to find a stock where there's the upside potential, but there's a flaw under downside. Absolutely. And inherently, that's what we're trying to do in our portfolio is buy those companies where there's more risk to the upside and very little risk to the downside. And it goes back to that experience with Carl Solomon is we want the best return for the lowest level of risk, not the opposite. And often when you're chasing penny stocks or speculative startup stocks like battery technology or buy now, pay later, nine out of 10 times you'll lose your money. Well, on that note, we'll call it a day. Ray David, thank you so much for joining us on The Rules of Investing. Thank you for having me. That's it for another week. Thanks again to Bell Direct for their support of this podcast. And remember, for a limited time, you can get three current Bell Potter stock reports each week. It's the kind of exclusive research that can give investors an edge. So go to belldirect.com.au and look for the Livewire logo to get your Bell Potter stock reports now. I'll see you next time.